please consider supporting China Talk at chinatalk.substack.com or patreon.com slash chinatalk. You'll get an ad-free feed and my eternal gratitude. All the best. Why has China prospered alongside vast corruption? Yuan Yuan Ang, professor at University of Michigan and the author of the recent China's Gilded Age, asks, how does corruption actually work in China? Why hasn't it stopped growth? And what does that mean for the future of regime stability? Before we get into this episode, I just want to talk about how good this book was. There was a ton of work that went into it, 400 plus interviews, and a handful of very cool data sets all squeezed into 225 elegant pages that do not shy away from taking on big questions. I tried to get Yuan to bribe me to let her come on the show today. I asked for two dinosaur eggs and one Song Dynasty landscape. Unfortunately, I got none of that. Um, I would have taken a doodle, to be honest, but uh, I'm such a loser that I let her come without giving me a cent. So without any further ado, Yuan, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Jordan. I could give you some Cadbury eggs <laughs> in lieu of dinosaur eggs. Uh, and by the way, the dinosaur eggs were an actual bribe given to this corrupt police officer in uh, Chongqing, for those who don't know what we're talking about. I really do appreciate your taking time to read the book so carefully in your generous words. But yeah, I have a lot of questions about those eggs because like, does he have the facilities to keep them from decomposing? I'm not sure he would put so much thought into maintaining those <laughs> eggs. So I do I have know, many doubts. Two million years, like you figure they could <laughs> make it through like, a humid pseudo summer or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyways. So, um, so yeah, you first, your first book was a, a broader history of the political economy of China. Um, why for the second book did you choose to focus in on corruption in particular? Great. I'm so glad you asked because this second book is a sequel of the first. And I can literally point to the page which stamped from the first book. And the first book is like a very broad sweep of how the economy, politics and institutions all change together over time. And one of the themes that keep popping up is what is the relationship between capitalism and corruption? And I had this one passage where I first used the word speed money and access money. And I realized that as economies grow and become more mature, it's not that corruption disappears. Rather, it's, it's that corruption change in quality. It became more sophisticated. And so that was like a passage that I left in the book, and I thought that it deserved a book on its own. Great. So let's get, let's get right into it. So one of the interesting concepts and frameworks that you first lay out is this idea of unbundling corruption. Generally in the press and even in the, in the academic literature, you don't see a lot of fine-grained analysis of the impacts of different types of corruption and how those different types of corruption impact economic growth and governance. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, so a little bit of background, you are absolutely right. We tend to think of corruption as a monolith, and this is being reinforced by global indices like the Corruption Perception Index, the CPI, which is released every year, and both the media and even academics would cite it without questioning the methodology. And basically what it does is that it measures corruption on a single scale, zero to 100, and that reinforces, powerfully reinforces the idea that corruption is just one thing, one bad thing, and, and some countries have it and some countries don't have it. That when, So when you take the CPI score, where every country has a number, and you plot it against their GDP 
income levels, you get a very strong correlation. No surprise. Rich countries appear to have no corruption. Poor countries appear to have a lot of corruption. And that is why we have this very strong impression that corruption is always bad for growth. So what I do in this book is, in order to explain the Chinese paradox of economic growth and vast corruption, first of all, we need to challenge the way corruption is conventionally defined and measured. So what I do is unbundle corruption. And I have four categories. So not too many that it will overwhelm and confuse you, but not so few that it's too oversimplistic. So four. And I have um, these four dimensions. Uh, these four categories are divided along two dimensions. Number one, whether that corruption involves elites or non-elites. And number two, whether that corruption involves theft or whether it involves exchange. When you intersect the two, you have four varieties. The first is what I call petty theft. So if a low-level police officer comes, shakes you down for an extortion, it's a one-way street, and you can think of that as petty theft. You have grand theft, which is embezzlement, and Nigeria is a classic case where their leaders would just embezzle billions of dollars into their Swiss bank accounts. And then you have the third variety, which is speed money. This is a common term in political science. And what it basically means is you pay petty bribes in order to get speed. They're trying to overcome a hurdle or an obstacle that a, a, a low-level bureaucrat put in your place. And then the fourth category is the one that I highlight and the one that is least, least examined in, in studies of corruption. I call this access money, which is elite. It's exchange-based. And it can range from everything from illegal, like massive bribes, to legalized. So we can think of lobbying as a kind of access money. So once you have these four types, uh, I offer a simple but hopefully compelling analogy for you to remember these four types. I use the analogy of drugs. We all know that drugs have side effects. No drugs are good for your health. And that is the same with corruption. No corruption is ever good, but they harm your health in different ways. So petty theft, I compare that, petty theft and grand theft, I compare that to toxic drugs. You can't get any benefit out of it. Speed money, I compare that to painkillers. It helps you overcome an inconvenience, it lessens your pain, but doesn't really you know, give you any kind of health benefits. And then access money, I compare that to anabolic steroids. Helps you grow mass, <laughs> helps you grow muscles fast. Uh, you can run really fast, great for athletic performance, but boy, you're gonna get some serious side effects that will build up and possibly erupt in a disaster. So there you go. You have four types of corruption, and they correspond with four types of drugs. And these, and these, four, and also correspond with four types of uh, economic impacts. So just to run through, there's, it's all deadweight loss when you talk about petty theft and grand theft. Mm. This, is, this is Russia perestroika early 1990s. This is Nigeria 2000s, where you just have tens of billions of dollars sitting in Swiss bank accounts that are doing absolutely nothing for the, the, the countries which are being looted. You have speed money, which helps, helps a, a, a broken bureaucracy like, like India's 
it lessens it lessens the pain if all the regulations were enforced in the way that they are written on the books, then there would be no growth whatsoever. So this is sort of allowing people with more money to get ahead, but not really not really helping all that much. Access money, on the other hand, means that the the powers that be also have some sort of incentive to um, put to push growth forward. It may not be the healthiest type of growth. Um, it may be growth that bulldozes thousands and thousands of, of, of homes and has a lot of environmental impacts and what have you, um, but, is, but is growth nonetheless, which is not something that you'll, you can get from the types of petty and grand theft that you would otherwise see. That is a terrific summary. And I would add one more point, which is that speed money is about paying to overcome an obstacle. So economists describe that as a tax, it's a tax on business. You're paying for something that otherwise wouldn't exist. Whereas access money, I think of it as an investment. So I'm paying to cultivate political connections with a Chinese politician or with an American politician because I know I'm going to get so much more returns from what I, whatever I've paid for. And so that is also a key distinction between speed money and access money. So I did a show a few months ago with Chris Miller talking about his book, which delved deep into Gorbachev and the ways in mm. which he tried to actually learn from Deng Xiaoping's, Deng Xiaoping's reforms. Interestingly, though, although, although Russia was more developed in the, in the early 90s, once the Soviet Union fell there, we had a the domi- grand theft became the dominant corruption paradigm. But in China, over time, the, the more uh, destructive forms of theft like 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 grand theft and speed money ultimately became replaced with uh, more of an access money dominant paradigm. So Yuan, could you talk about what happened from a bureaucratic level, the reforms of of Deng and, and Zhurongji that pointed the bureaucracy towards a more pro-growth access money framework? Yeah, that's a great question because it gets at the question of why did access money dominate in China? rather than in Russia or Nigeria. And this is the part where I see Deng Xiaoping playing an absolutely critical role. And his role was in stage one of market opening from 1978 to 1992. And the way I understand how he set up the rules of the game is that, first of all, he made it very clear that Unlike Gorbachev, he's going to make CCP the only game in town. So if you wanted to get along, get ahead, if you want to prosper, you have to remain within the party and play by the rules of the party. Uh, That was different in Russia because with simultaneous economic and political reforms, the bureaucrats all of a sudden felt lost and they felt that there was no longer order in place. And so the best option for them was to go out and extort and steal as much as they can. But Deng made it very clear that we still have an order and a game in place, and there's only one game in town. And then I think the second thing he did was he set up a reward system, though he didn't call it that. And it basically, um, he basically wanted to make sure that communist officials get to benefit from capitalist reform. So he wanted to give them incentives to make this ideological and system shift, right, from communism to capitalism. And how he did that was 
on the one hand, through certain formal institutional changes like fiscal decentralization, changing the way their cadre evaluation targets were set. And also informally, though he never puts it on paper, is that officials will also, in the process of transitioning to a capitalism, get to personally and financially benefit from it. But in his stage of opening up, that was only stage one. So China's market actually only opened up a little bit in the 1980s. And that little bit already brought about enough of a big difference to the economy. The livelihoods of farmers improved dramatically. People started to have food to eat. And then there was the beginnings of corruption, although the scale of it at the time was very, very small compared to today. Um, That got people angry about corruption. And so if you look at the Tiananmen in 1989, corruption was one of the main rallying calls. And then fast forward the story, Deng Xiaoping stepped in after Tiananmen. He had his Swan Song Act, Southern Tour, set the country on a firm path toward the firm embrace of capitalism, which then takes us to step two of the story about corruption and capitalism. So, so Zhu Rongji comes, comes, you know, he, the man has been on the scene for a while now, but starting, starting in, in, in 1993, Zhu gets into the position where he's able to, to really reform the bureaucracy and point it away from the sort of uh, petty, uh, petty theft and, and grand theft that, he understands would play a real would would be a real um, break on China's potential future growth. So, what does he do to to continue and expand upon Deng's initial reforms? So, a new leadership takes over in 1993, and that is Jiang Zemin and Premier Zhu Rongji. And I actually love the the comments that you sent over to me that Zhu Rongji is a bureaucratic genius, and he is underrated. Like people don't remember him so much today, uh, but he he really was. He played this crucial role after 93 in setting up a modern institutional, regulatory, and administrative apparatus for the global capitalist China that we see today. So he comes in, and he's also a really interesting character uh, because I tell my students that you can easily you know, identify Zhu Rongji. He's always pointing his finger and looking angry. And so, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm not kidding you. You can go to Google and you Google his name and almost every picture looks angry or point fingers. And that's because he, he's kind of known to be a really a resolute, iron-handed person. And his job in the 1990s was uh, involved a lot of shouting. Uh, it involved going around the country, uh, reprimanding corrupt officials, telling them to um, clean up their acts. So he, he's really quite a character, a brilliant policy designer, a very determined bureaucrat, no-nonsense guy. So Who also, you know, spent five years farming pigs after being, uh, being on the wrong side of the um, 500 flowers movement. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's such a extraordinary generation. He, including Xi Jinping and Bo Xilai, they have gone through, it feels like they've gone through like two centuries, right, in yeah. their lifetime. So Zhongji is a really interesting character. He comes along and, and he's the right man to do the job of um, from 1993 onwards, which was step, stage two of China's market opening, building what was called a socialist market economy. And it was basically, simply put, 
that China was going to move from partial reforms to fully embracing capitalism. And so a big part of that job involved changing the bureaucracy and modernizing it so that it's compatible with capitalism. And I think today that this is often forgotten, but China had a communist bureaucracy and that was really not compatible with capitalism at all in terms of the structure, the practices, the way they recruited people, even the kind of offices that were set up. So he had it was a this, centrally planned economy. Yeah. It was a centrally planned. I mean, it had, had really had offices were controlling prices and, and they were obsolete. So he basically had to restructure the entire bureaucracy in a very short amount of time. But he, but one of the things that he uh, did with great determination were the administrative reforms after from 1998 onwards. But he put in a whole um, slew of reforms to basically build up very basic state capacity within the public administration that helps to fight um, corruption with theft. So it helps to fight embezzlement, uh, helps to fight misuse of public funds, bureaucratic extortion, petty bribery. And this is an underappreciated point uh, about how backward China was not so long ago. But let me give you an example um, when I was doing field work in China, I would say, I think maybe that was like the early 2000s. If you go to a place like Sichuan, which is more backward compared to, say, Shanghai, the, and you go to a county office and you ask them for the names of particular bureaucrats who were in the various offices, they actually had just started to collect those names. Right. So so simple things like who's really working in this county government, it's really simple, basic kind of information that you would think a strong state has. China didn't have because it really was a poor developing country without the technology, without the ability to see things at a very fine green level. So in when I when I talked with the an official at the Ministry of Finance, for instance, he explained that when the MOF wants to allocate a particular grant just from office to office within Beijing at the central level, it can take up to 10 months. And they didn't have the computers and the mechanisms to track exactly how the funds flowed. And so in all of these kind of circumstances, you can just imagine that corruption with theft was really easy. Because if you steal, there's just like not much paper trace, like paper, uh, paperwork to trace your, your corrupt actions. And so what Zhongji did were the really basic things. He put in computers. He put in e-governance. He issued this system of receipts for tax collection so that you can actually track who's paying taxes and where is it being paid to. Really technical, dry stuff that is ignored in the media, even in academic analysis. But overall, it laid a solid foundation for China with state capacity, the China that we see today. What do you think of like why he was able to to get these reforms through in the first place? That's a really good question. I'm sure there was pushback internally that was not publicized. Why he was able to push it through, number one, it was an overall national strategy, like we are going to create a modern state for a modern economy. So there was a very strong, unambiguous mandate from the top. 
And number two, Zhong Ji is just a tough guy, and that's why he's always looking angry. <laughs> he's like he's like going around the country and reprimanding people all the time in those years. And and he has many quotes about uh, him reprimanding people. So he was like the right personality for that. And 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 then there's a systemic feature, which is that the local leaders in each jurisdiction had incentives to go along with this because. They wanted to promote economic growth, and if you have your individual bureaucrats running around while harassing firms and extracting fees and fines from them, that really gets in the way of your ability to attract businesses. So it was a confluence of top-level policy, Jews' personality, and local incentives that I think made this work very well. And and so once you have Once you have China with state capacity, and China that opened up more than ever to a capitalist world, what happened to the patterns of corruption was really striking. Which is that if you look at the chapter of my book that shows you how patterns of corruption evolve, you can see that embezzlement and misuse of public funds drastically decline after 2000. Which is reflecting of the kind of reforms that Zhu put in place. But at the same time, bribery just exploded. So、yeah. the structure of corruption in China changed within actually a pretty short amount of time—about ten years. Let's talk a little bit first about the elite level of what corruption look like, looks like. The, the most fascinating thing I thought about it was that you can most certainly be corrupt and competent, and in fact, your competence level is directly connected with how much money you can end up getting in your coffers. Uh, yeah. Mind explaining, mind explaining about that dynamic. Yeah. So, so this is so in in, in this is the chapter of the book where I look at particular profiles of corrupt officials from the top, like Bo Xilai, to the mid level, like Ji Jianye in Nanjing. And I had a lot of fun researching this this chapter because I I learned a lot of surprising things as I unpack their career profiles. One of the things that surprised myself the most is. That corruption and competence were, were two things that did not just coexist, like they were just accidentally happening at the same time, but that they were actually mutually reinforcing. Meaning、yeah. to say that if if you wanted to be a corrupt official, you actually have to be competent. You have to show that you are ambitious. You are the next rising star, so that you will attract people who actually want to sponsor you. And on the other hand, if you want to be a, a competent official, you want to deliver projects, get things done.、Uh, you also, in a sense, need corruption because you need the corporate sponsorship to get things done. And we might think of that as a Chinese version of campaign finance. In, in, in democracies, right? Po- American politicians can't just exist on their own. They they need campaign finance. They they need con- they need a funders behind them to do their work, right? Except campaign finance is institutionalized and legalized in this country. But I I see that as a parallel in, in China. You a, a politician also needs campaign finance, and and so these two things, corruption and competence, actually went together. Yeah,、um, I, I love the anecdote. It was it was Dalian, right? Of course, the the the, the fallen the, the fallen mayor of Chongqing who had a chance to become become president of China before he was in Chongqing was in Dalian, which is a coastal city.、Mm-hmm. And one of the、uh, businessmen who he started working with, who ended up following him into Chongqing, built this big plaza or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. And for and for Bo Lai, when he gives the big contract to this guy who's building the plaza for him, he wants the plaza to be successful. Um, because if it's not successful, then he doesn't hit his growth targets, then he doesn't get promoted. So it, it's 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 fascinating because it's a two-way street. Because also the the competent real estate developers and business people, they don't want to pick some who's who's not going to make it to the next round and get promoted because they want to sort right. of ride the coattails of a of a 15, 20 year career, not just invest their money in a project that may may give some 3% return when what they're really looking forward to is the super big contract once once this guy gets promoted to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I was also surprised researching the case about Bo Xilai and and his so his crony is called Xu Ming. And usually we have this impression of corrupt capitalists as good for nothings who just sort of rely on their connections to get ahead. And that turns out to be mostly a caricature because if you look at the profile of Xu Ming, this guy was corrupt. He loved to cultivate connections, but he definitely is a smart guy. And so in constructing that a plaza for Bo Xilai, which apparently set a record, I think it's actually larger than the New York Times Square, he, what he did was that he, he, he uh, backed two projects at the same time. So he digged up all of the sand from one project and used that to build the plaza. And even Tai Xin said that it's so innovative because he got to make more money and kill two birds with one stone. Uh, yeah. so, so it just goes to say that this is not like some bum who just drinks and entertains his way to success. It is a smart guy. And I'm surprised, as you described, that both the process of choosing a patron and the process of choosing a client is highly competitive, right? So this yeah, is not, not a, it's, yeah, it's not a game for like just good for nothings to join. Yeah, yeah it's no, there, there aren't a lot of false offs running around because the Prince Hal's uh, will do a better job of, of, of picking out the, the, the folks who really want to really want to play the game. The other one, uh, the other little anecdote that I thought was fascinating, this guy, uh, Tong Mingqian. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. He's interesting. Who was um, this, like, Lao Haoren, basically, like, I sort of, like, I think that the best translation I have that for that is, like, beta male in English. Perfect. He sort of, like, said yes to everyone. He only had noodles for dinner. He was, like, <laughs> the cleanest guy in the game. And basically, what that led to him is being, he ended up getting totally pushed around and bullied by the businessmen who would barge into his office and demand favors. And uh, the reason he ended up getting caught is because, so, so in, in China, there's not just the NPC. There, there, there are provincial level as well as local level congresses. And, and, uh, and businessmen sometimes try to buy their way onto these in order to have more favors mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. have something else to put on their business cards. Two businessmen came into his office and they said, we paid X thousand uh, renminbi and we didn't get on this year's slate. What's the deal? And this politician, instead of saying, like, what the fuck? Why are you in my office? He apologizes and tries to get these guys their money back. So, um, you know, this is not the way you win the game of Chinese politics, to be sure. Exactly. He is he is such a fascinating character. He is such an interesting story because he's such a contrast to Bo Xilai and Ji Jianye, right? And I was like, yeah, how do you translate Lao Haoren? At first I thought it was nice guy, but I thought beta male was, is absolutely the, the, the most accurate term. And, and I think his story really illuminates that China's political system is not one where being nice and being compliant will help you to get ahead. You have to be ruthless and you have to be uh, tough. 
And it's also really interesting to see how the Chinese media described Tong Mingqian. They were absolutely condescending. Like they really looked down on him. <laughs> so I think at least Bo Xilai could walk away saying, I've been macho all this time. You know, I stood up, you know, in the court and like, and talked back to the judge. I think he could at least walk away with that reputation. But Tong Mingqian just like, he, he in the end was arrested, not because of bribes, but, but because he was, he was considered responsible for the vote buying scandal just because he was the leader at the time and 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 fell in disgrace so uh, yuan when you start your corrupt official consultancy um what what services are you going to offer and what is your uh, what's your five-point plan for getting ahead uh, going to include well, I don't think I would want to start a corrupt official consultancy and, and I don't think I would have any, adv- any better advice to offer than, than, than the corrupt officials or businesses themselves already know. Um, but what your question uh, just does remind me is that there actually really is a, a sub, what do you call that? A sub industry of middle people in China whose job is to link interested capitalists with interested... So you see that actually mentioned in the case of Ji Jianye, where he had this middle person who was his mother's god sister. She's a hotel manager. And, and she's the one who, to, if, if you wanted to bribe Ji Jianye or get close to him, buy his access, first you go through her. So this is actually a pretty elaborate underculture subsystem of of intermediaries in in China's political system. So since you brought up the first woman in this story, I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit. I imagine most of these 400 interviews you did were with males. But I'm curious if you could talk a little more about maybe two things. First, what it was like as a woman talking to lots of Chinese businessmen and politicians about corruptions. And what, if any, women, aside from, aside from this intermediary you saw playing this game? Mm, really interesting question. I could talk about this forever. But <laughs> the first thing to know is that the Chinese bureaucracy is heavily, heavily male-dominated, right? So you rarely see male bureaucrats or leaders. It's, it's, it's a really uh, male-dominated culture. There are some female bureaucrats every now and then. And so in terms of my interviews, in this book, I draw on the same set of interviews that I used to write my first book. And that book, all, all of the uh, hard work and, and, and sunk costs put into collecting those interviews with bureaucrats and businesses essentially sort of provides this database of, of, of details about how the bureaucracy functions. And so you are right, I would say, 98% or maybe even 99% of the of the bureaucrats that I speak to are men. In terms of the dynamics, it is it can be very tough. The gender dynamics is tough, but there are also other things that are even tougher. Um, just trying to get to different parts of China, trying to get to talk to bureaucrats, uh, those hurdles are even much greater. And one of my one of my observations is that the gender bias and the sexism varies regionally. So if I'm in southern China, I find that it's easier for me to overcome the gender bias than if I were in northern China. And maybe my northern friends would disagree. 
and and with what I said, but it's my experience, really true. So over time, I I I, I try to I, I try to spend more time in 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 southern and western China, where where the regional culture and and the culture towards gender relations are very different. Once you get to Shandong, I've never been to Dongbei, but Dongbei has this very macho culture. There's a lot of emphasis on being on machoism. And you get to Shandong, you can already start to feel that. And so there is actually a lot of regional variation on 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 these on these gender dynamics. So aside from the the, the, the gender dynamics, there's also the dynamic of you as this Western affiliated academic talking about people doing crimes. What is the were, were folks were, were folks generally proud and wanted to show off to you? What 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 do you think was the was the incentive and and uh, what what do you think led them to to take your interviews and and want to chat? So I'm glad you asked this question because it is really important whether you are doing interviews in China or in India or even in the United States that nobody wants to sit down and talk about corruption, like absolutely nobody, even in democracies. And so the way that I approach my、uh, study. Is that I don't think of myself as being here to study corruption, the potential bad things that you're doing. I think of it as I'm here to study governance. I'm here to study how do you do your daily work, what are the challenges that you face, how do you go about solving them. Tell me your life story. You've worked in the bureaucrat your whole. You've worked as a bureaucrat your whole life,、uh, and tell me your life story. And 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 that's my approach. It's as simple as that. My my favorite opening question is, "What is the problem that keeps you awake? What is the problem that gives you the most headache?" And then and then just let the official talk about his or her problem. And then along the way, things related to rewards, incentives, and 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 corruption and connections will naturally reveal themselves without you having to try to poke holes at anything. Sure. So I imagine this this research was easier earlier and got difficult in the most recent years. How has how have you seen kind of she's tightening impact your ability to do this sort of research? The impact is is huge. It's visible, and you're absolutely right. It got harder and harder. So one of the adaptations that I did is that fortunately many of my interviews were done. Uh, with bureaucrats were done earlier, and that sort of、uh, served to give me an in-depth understanding of how the bureaucracy work. And、uh, I would say around from 2014, 15 onward, it started to get really nervous. Like the whole climate became one of an, a deep anxiety. And so I adapted by starting to talk more with business people and entrepreneurs. And I really like that they are really colorful characters because more or less restrained. You have interesting bureaucrats, but generally they're more restrained. But but my like entrepreneurs, like they're so distinctive. Every single one of them is like a character from from a movie. Oh, or like I had such interesting conversations with tycoons and private entrepreneurs, and. I remember, like in one day, I spoke with a real estate tycoon. He, he told me his life story, which was amazing. And then on the same day in the afternoon, 
I met a private sector entrepreneur who erected a gold statue of Mao. He was like total Mao fan. <laughs> and he had a Mao museum set up in his office. He was a jazz uh, enthusiast, so he had a whole band in his office. He was like, "Yes, this is such a colorful character," and they're super opinionated. Uh, they will they will go on and on, and and they want you to sit down as a professor and hear their opinion. Very interesting people to talk to. Yeah, I think I think audience members got a sense of that looking at the at the recent you know Chinese factory. Movie, but there's way more of that. Yes, where, uh, yes, that's right. That's right. That's、um, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, because because these folks like there's not inherited wealth in China yet,、mm-hmm. at least with the, with the business owners in their in their you know 40s and 50s and 60s. I mean, maybe you had a parent who went to college or was a or was a bureaucrat, but like to a, to a pretty large extent, the 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 generation that you were talking to is very very self made and kind of cut it. On their own in the eighties and nineties and two thousands, and that that is a very level was it was a relatively level playing field for a lot of、uh, a lot of businesses to get started on. Yeah, it was. I would say it was absolutely self made, and that's why it's called China's Gilded Age.、Uh, because if you think about its parallels with America's Gilded Age, the American version emerged after the Civil War, right? So it was a time of total devastation. And everything was basically forced to restart, and and it was the same in China after seventy eight. The country had suffered thirty years of Mao's disastrous rule. Was trying to keep itself together after the Cultural Revolution. All of the previously rich people have either been purged or killed, and so everything was starting from scratch. So there's so many parallels with America's Gilded Age. But one of the words that I read that was spoken by J.P. Morgan, which I read in a book, I thought applied aptly to China. And J.P. Morgan once said something along the lines of, "In times like this, in turbulent times like this, you have to learn to fish in troubled waters. And if you can fish in troubled waters, then you will make it and become fabulously rich in these circumstances."、Mm. I like that a lot. Yeah,、um, I do. Mind telling the the Leland Stanford anecdote? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in in researching this book, I also read a number of books about America's Gilded Age. Very enlightening. One of the shocking details to me was like, how exactly did Mister Stanford get rich? And that gets quite personal to me. Because I'm a proud graduate of Stanford University, I'm really proud of my alma mater. Grateful, Mr. Stan, Mr. and Mrs. Stanford gave their wealth away, and and then when I read about their history, I I was I was really very disturbed. So for those of you who don't know, Stanford made his wealth through、um, building railways, right? So if you think about that's the equivalent of China's Gaotian today. If you are building the Gaotian, you are going to be very rich because this is the product that everyone needs during the beginning of an industrial revolution. And apparently, Stanford was also the governor of California, so he was both businessman and politician. And he went to great lengths to cultivate connections. The, 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 the kind of access money that he was doing was absolutely outrageous. Like he had, he had, he was brazen. Had had. Had no shame in doing it. It was extensive and endemic, and and we also know that he 
essentially use Chinese, cheap Chinese migrant labor under near slavery conditions to build the railways, sure. right? So it was all very troubling. And, and I use this in the book to, I'm gonna, I don't want to give away the spoiler, but, but I use his story in the book to try to get people to think about if I told you Stanford, if, if I told you the, the, I, if I told you the details of Stanford's story, but I just made him Chinese, how would that change your perception? Right. And, 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 and I'm trying to do that to get people to think about is our perception of China sometimes very strongly shaped by the fact that we have certain expectations of China that, that, yeah, that we, when we see a corruption scandal, we're like, Oh, look, look how corrupt China is. It's going to collapse soon. But as soon as I tell you, in fact, that's an American story, we are willing to sit back and accept the whole case in its complexity. Sure. I mean, I think the, 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 the key thing which you see forgotten so often is that a ton of China is still really, really, really poor. Mm. And this is something that we're going to get into right now when we talk about not the high-level access corruption, but sort of the low-level bureaucrats and street-level officials and their profit sharing. So talk a little bit about this data set that you made of the income that officials make in Shandong province and what that tells us about how mid to lower level officials incentives are aligned with promoting growth. Sure. And just a few um, notes to put things in context. Normally, when we talk about the Chinese government, we think of high level leaders like Bo Xilai, and we neglect everyone else who is not a leader. And so what I want to do in my studies to help everyone realize that the bureaucracy is more than just a top leader, although they are obviously very important. And the whole Chinese bureaucracy, if you measure it from top to bottom at all levels, excluding state enterprises, we're talking about 50 million people, right? That's the size of the population of South Korea. So we're talking about this massive organization. So earlier on, we talked about profit sharing and incentivizing elite players, the likes of Osilai. But then there's a second level problem, which is when you have this like massive bureaucracy of 50 million people, your police officers, your clerks, your teachers, your your administrative officers and so forth, how do you manage them? And a more basic question is how do you pay them? Because it's very expensive to pay them. And how much do you pay them? Because if you pay them not enough, then obviously they have no choice but to extort. And this is what we see in most third world countries. And if you pay them too much, then you will have an excessive financial burden and people, the Chinese people will also really complain about that. So this is what the chapter looks into, this meet to low level, street level uh, bureaucrats and how they're compensated and how that affects their economic uh, behavior. So what I look at is the question of how are street-level bureaucrats in China paid? And the answer is that the formal wages in China are very low. Even until today, despite efforts by Zhu Rongji and by Xi Jinping to raise the formal wages, it is still very low. Off the top of my head, I've I forgot what is um, Xi Jinping's current formal salary. I believe it is around 800 US dollars per month. 
but at the at the lower levels, uh, a more kind of concrete expression of how low the formal wages are is that when I went to a, a county in Sichuan, the personnel office said that our formal wages are actually lower than the minimum wages for laborers. So the lower level bureaucrats, they are paid below subsistence. So what do you do about that? And the reality is that on top of the formal wages, there is an extremely elaborate system of fringe benefits and fringe pay, things like bonuses, overtime pay, and free gifts that bureaucrats regularly get from the agencies. In that particular instance where they were comparing the archives of, I think it was the archives office and construction office. Yeah. And the words he said in Chinese is 连傻子都知道, even, a, even an idiot knows <laughs> the difference between what the construction bureau gets and what the archives office gets. And so it's, it's, it's just really, for me, it's just a fascinating kind of, kind of underground ecosystem of, of, of how they go about, how these millions of bureaucrats go about supplementing their incomes when formal salaries are low. And then there's a more fascinating story, which is that this is more than just individual behavior trying to make up for low pay, that I find that it, is, it actually functions as an incentive structure, a monetary incentive structure, such that the amount of fringe benefit and pay that you get which most observers, even China observers, dismiss as corruption, is more than just corruption because they are linked to your economic performance. They're linked to the amount of money that your agency makes, and that's why the Construction Bureau can give out more goodies to their, to their staff. It is also linked to the amount of wealth and tax revenue your particular city can, can generate. And so what I do in the chapter is to collect data that estimates the actual amount of compensation that these street-level bureaucrats receive. So I mean, when I say actual, I mean their formal salary plus all of their fringe benefits. It does not include possible illegal bribes they may collect on the side. So that I did not capture. Yeah. But if you just look... would be really impressive if you could have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't. I don't. It, it is entirely possible that they collect petty bribes on the side. That's not include. That's not captured in that data. Just the formal wages, the fringe benefits, and I show through statistical analysis that the amounts that people were getting is not random. It's not accidental, but it's systematically linked to financial performance, and that is actually really remarkable. Because in most countries, you have similar problems, underpaid bureaucracies, extraction of fringe benefits, but there's no system to it. It's not an incentive structure. It's just haphazard. One of the really interesting things that you also wrote about is like, on the one hand, you could be harder on the businesses, but then five years down the line, you'll end up being making less than your neighboring, neighboring county that took a more collaborative approach. There's this idea that you don't want to kill the golden goose, uh, mm. but and 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 one of the arguments you say is that like the reason that this is an idea that has taken hold is because people see other parts of the country that are getting prosperous and therefore have more prosperous uh, officials. I'm curious if you could if you could go a little deeper into like how this idea gets seeded in the first place that the way to relative riches as a as a construction bureau official in like rural Shandong province 
is not by bleeding your local businesses dry, even though that is the most straightforward way to put put food on your family's table and then your. Yeah, so I I cannot you know tell you like if, if there is a specific point in time where everyone somehow got this kind of informal consensus, but in talking to these bureaucrats, they felt that. When you ask them, do you sense that you have a stake in the long-term development of your jurisdiction? They feel that that is such a stupid question because, like, isn't it obvious? So I do not know at what point it became obvious to them, but I think we can look for particular clues, which is that these bureaucrats they they look around them, right? So as you described, they look at their neighbors. They also take study trips and and they they get a sense of comparison. And I think the conclusion was pretty clear to them that whoever can make more money, whether it's an agency or a locality, gets rich more, and that ultimately will translate into staff benefits and and pay. So so they themselves, each one of them, have an interest to not over harass or over extract businesses because, in a sense, they have. Like a dividend, it's like a dividend system. They collect dividends from 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 local prosperity, so they have this kind of informal consensus, but it's not written anywhere. I also have a particular quote where this deputy mayor did stand in front in a mass meeting in front of all of the bureaucrats and consciously reminded them, like remind, like remember your pay and benefits is linked to the prosperity of a city, so don't slack behind. So, so I think it's 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 maybe a combination of of just casual comparison, a reinforcement of patterns, and sometimes leaders reminding them every now and then that just that adds together to what appears to these Chinese bureaucrats as so obvious. Like, why would you even bother to ask me? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a sort of thing that's that's overdetermined, right? Like, you can only get this if you already have an economy. That is growing at ten percent, so that there are examples of、um, bureaucrats that have done well for themselves by playing relatively nice with the with the businesses. Exactly, exactly. So we've been saying a lot of positive things about corruption in the past hour or so, but it's important to know that there are also significant downsides. So,、mm-hmm. what are the structural problems when this type of access money flows so freely through the system? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this question because. My big worry, which which is already happening in some places, is that people will read this book and walk away with the conclusion that oh, corruption is good and we should do more corruption. And no, that is absolutely not my point. And what I wanted to stress is that the kind of access money corruption in China, yes, it really incentivizes state and business. To embrace capitalism, but it came with all sorts of distortions that are just not captured in GDP. I'll give you just some examples. The hotspot of crony capitalism is real estate and land, right? And so that is why, in this particular sector, you also see tied up with cronyism,、uh, mounting government debts. Right? Governments borrow heavily to build heavily to increase the value of real estate. You also see overconstruction. You see sort of paradoxes in China, whereby you have an overabundance of luxury properties, but a total undersupply of affordable housing. And you also create sort of incentive problems across the entire economy. And one of which is 
that increasingly entrepreneurs were moving away from the real economy, meaning manufacturing, into speculative activities. And this was a concerning enough problem for the National Development Reform Commission, the NDRC, and the Premier to come out openly to say, we have to, we have to stop and we have to prevent our economy from becoming purely speculative. So before we wrap up today, um, we can't do a corruption show without talking about the Xi anti-corruption initiative. Uh, one of the takeaways that you had was uh, this idea that we, we talked earlier about the corrupt and competent officials being the ones that in some senses are the best for economic growth and bureaucratic innovation. In what ways is the anti-corruption initiative sort of like sapping both the money as well as the creative lifeblood out of the out of the elite bureaucracy? So in trying to stamp out crony capitalism, she has created an opposite problem. And it is now popularly known in China as Lanzheng, which translate roughly into lazy governance, inaction and paralysis, essentially, both because bureaucrats are, are terrified and, 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 and they feel that it's, it's much better that I not take uh, any risk. Uh, because I may be, I may be accused of, of of corruption. And one of the things that's worth pointing out is that the kind of officials who have really made change in China, who have pushed progress forward, no matter how problematic they are, are the ones who are risk taking. The legs of Bosilai, and even at the lower levels, you find many varieties like him. And even when they are not corrupt, they take policy risks. So they do things that other leaders have not done before, where Beijing has not explicitly given uh, given consent. And that kind of risk-taking activity was an essential part of not only China's growth, but of its adaptive governance. Because a lot of uh, policy experiments actually come from bottom-up. They're not solutions that Beijing sat in some office and came up on their own. So this risk-taking attitude was was very central to China's adaptive governance and dynamism. And now, uh, when you look at the current situation, if you deviate from the explicit line from Beijing, with even if you didn't take bribes, you are putting yourself uh, at risk of of being accused of corruption. And so that is why we are now seeing this opposite problem of bureaucrats not wanting to do anything. What what do your findings have on corruption? What implications do your findings have for regime stability? A lot of people have been arguing for a long time that corruption may bring down the regime. And what I would add to that debate is that it's corruption will not bring down the CCP by stopping growth or by making Chinese citizens so desperate that they will take to the streets in mass protests, right? So we have to be very clear about exactly what is the nature of corruption threat to the CCP and to C. It does not take those forms because corruption in China is mostly in the manner of access money. Corruption is threatening to the regime in two ways. Number one, it intensifies factional rivalry. It enriches factions and it enriches princelings like Bo Xilai, allowing them to have the vast power and financial resources to say no back to Beijing. And because Xi Jinping took office in the midst of the Bo Xilai scandal, 
That is one of the key reasons why he thinks anti-corruption is the thing that he must do. And the other threat is regime legitimacy. Everyday Chinese people look around them and they can see that this is a society of grotesque inequality. It is China's Gilded Age in the same way as it was America's Gilded Age. Right? You have the new rich who are just so wealthy and the rest of the population. Premier Li Keqiang revealed a shocking fact during the two sessions meeting. And it was a simple fact. He said 600 million people in China make only 1,000 yuan a month. So 1,000 yuan is about 120 US dollars, right? So, and that's 600 million people. That's about 40% of China's population. So when you keep that statistic in mind, that's not consistent with the popular image of, wow, China's rise as a superpower that's going to take over the United States. It is still a developing country. It is vast majority of Chinese people are still really poor. It's just that we only see the very rich people traveling overseas, and we only see the glamorous side of Shanghai and and Beijing. Uh, The truth is that this country is so unequal. And so those are the two respects, factional rivalry and grotesque inequality, that really makes corruption so threatening to the CCP. Last question for you. So I think it's clear to everyone that Renmin Dominyi, which was the the government-approved version of the anti-corruption story, was good, but didn't quite hit the spot. So if you had any suggestions for who you would like to direct and act in the Boshilai biopic, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to hear your pitch for all the Hollywood, uh, Hollywood uh, producers out there. Uh, that's a great question. I put some serious thought into who would play Boshilai, and I'm waiting for someone to make a movie about him because he's a ready movie. Like, I almost feel like Boshilai is playing Boshilai because he is such a caricature. Do you have that feeling? Right? He is yeah. he is handsome. He is dashing. He is audacious and and it's it's, it's like he is deliberately playing a movie character. So I, I want to hear your thoughts about the cast, but but after some thought, I, I thought of a mainland actor, mainland Chinese actor and a Hong Kong actor, so that's balanced. In terms of mainland Chinese actor, I really like Wu Gang, who is um, the actor who played who played Da Kang Shuji in in Renmin the Mingyi, right? And I think he's a fabulous actor in the sense that he's really good at conveying complexities. Like he's not, you, you don't watch his role and feel like, oh, this is just a pure villain or a pure hero. He makes you feel really complicated. Like you like him and and hate him at the same time. And I think a more a more complex depiction of Bosilai should, should bring out those multiple sides because there are people who hate Bosilai and others who love him. And then on the Hong Kong side, I would I actually thought of Aaron Kwok, Guo Fu Cheng. Do you him? Yeah. Right, yeah. Explain. Aaron Kwok is is really handsome. So so he won. And in in the in the eighties, he's sort of known as this uh, cute boy. He has this cute boy face. And so I thought, okay, Aaron Kwok, given his good looks, and he also worked hard at being a good actor, would would, would be interesting for him to play Boy Silai. Yeah. And and what what about you? What do do you have choices? Uh, did, you, did you have did you have a director? A director. Oh, that's really hard. I I I don't I don't often oh maybe <laughs> Ang Lee. <laughs> He will, he will bring out the subtleties of Bo Silai. I would love that. 
I would love that. Like, how would or like how would Ang Lee direct a movie about Bussi Lai without caricaturing it? I I don't know if it's that's possible. Yeah. Have you seen uh, this the, the new hot show Yin Mi the Jiao Luo? No, I have not. So, so it's this. It, it it was just released like a month ago. I really want to recommend it to folks out okay, there. Okay. Okay.、Um, A few for a few reasons. First off, it is,、um, and we'll get back to Bosiel. I promise. So it's you can find it with English subtitles on iq.com, which、okay. is iq's like like Haiwai Ban. And anyways, it's it's only twelve episodes, which is great because most、mm. Chinese series are like sixty or seventy episodes long. This is the first show I have ever seen. And to be clear, I've only been watching Chinese TV for like the past. Three years, and I haven't watched anything older than like 2012. So there may be good shows in like the history of Chinese television, but this is the first one that this is clearly on another level when it comes to diving into psychology.、Mm. The the shots are beautiful. The music is incredibly atmospheric. It's not like played for dumb laughs like most genres you are. The director like used to be a punk rocker. It just has this crazy weird background, and none of the actors are famous. Which is another very surprising thing for Chinese Chinese dramas. So I guess my pitch would be just to have this the team that made Shemi the Jiaowu take on go from <laughs> troubled troubled poor children and them being distraught about their parents getting divorced or whatever to high Chinese politics. I think it would be I think it would be a great second act for for this for this really standout production team. It, the problem is it's so good that apparently like. All of Ichi Ichi wanted to do all these other miniseries, but、uh-huh. now they're all getting in trouble because people are like, "Oh, like you can't have poor people on television. Like this is not this is not Zhang Longliang enough." So, oh、um, wow, it's so good.、Okay. It's making all the other shows worse,、um, which is which is when the show was really good. That's when you made it. That's when. <laughs> yes. yes.、Um, Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you, and this has been such a fun conversation. And we are eagerly waiting for.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.Eagerly.E
不累，精准扶贫不能掉队，把人民的希望变成生活的现实。身改小组两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿啊，加改税改国企改改改改改，简政放权释放活力，供给改革升级经济，改革关头勇者胜。身改小组两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿啊！苍蝇、老虎、大狐狸，抓抓抓抓！从严治党，自身要硬，司法改革一定要赢。高举反腐的利剑。身改小组两岁了，这两年干了不少的事儿啊！治水、治气、治土地、治治治治啊！绿水青山就是金山，一带一路秉承的是。不是封闭的，而是开放包容的。Please consider supporting China Talk at chinatalk.substack.com or patreon.com/chinatalk. You'll get an ad-free feed and my eternal gratitude. All the best.